0: Welcome to another installment of the Good Life Revival podcast. I'm your host, Sam Sycamore, and I'm coming to you once again from my off grid sanctuary among the redwoods and tan oaks of northern coastal California, right here at the start of September 2019. Today's episode features my conversation with Professor Daniel Immervar of Northwestern University, author most recently of a book entitled How to Hide an Empire. A History of the Greater United States. This is one of the most fascinating books I've ever read, detailing the sordid history of the American Empire's non-state territorial holdings from roughly 1850 through to the present day. Maybe this sounds like it's somewhat outside of my wheelhouse, and I will be the first to admit that I am no historian. Uh, but uh, I was delighted to speak with Professor Imrevar and, and give him my little podium uh, for the better part of an hour to uh, shine a light on some of the nearly forgotten stories of marginalized peoples and, and how they've been treated by a largely historically racist empire, you know, well out on the fringes beyond the mainland where the colonizers' own ethical standards and laws often don't apply for various dubious reasons. It is a credit to Daniel's storytelling ability that what could have easily been a rather dry, authoritative text is instead a thoroughly engaging page-turner, and and honestly, I, I was just blown away by pretty much every story that comes up in the book, so much more than he and I could possibly begin to discuss here. Um, but I know that our conversation is going to pique your interest in this topic. And, uh, if you want to check out the book, how to hide an empire, stick around to the uh, back end of the show where uh, I'll let you in on how you can get a free audio copy of the book, which doesn't involve Amazon. So that's cool. Uh, I think we can pretty much all agree that supporting Amazon is just kind of objectively a bad thing, <laughs> but you know, don't beat yourself up about it, man. <laughs> Anyway, we will get into my conversation with Daniel Immervar right after this. This and every episode of the Good Life Revival podcast is made possible by my dear sweet subscribers over on patreon at patreoncom slash Revival. And I owe a special thanks this time around to new patrons Steve and Rob both of whom had some really kind and encouraging things to say. And gosh, I'm seriously, I'm just so fortunate to be able to connect with folks like you who really deeply resonate with the things that I share here and who feel compelled to help me keep this little steamboat afloat. (laughs) If you can imagine that this show is... Uh, Maybe not a steamboat, but (laughs) uh, more like a lecture series that I might give on top of a soapbox in like an old-timey kind of town square sort of situation. You know how people used to gather in like public spaces and talk to each other and stuff? (laughs) Well, if that's what the podcast is, then Patreon is kind of like the hat. That I would pass around uh, through the audience at the end of the lecture, where people could toss in a couple bucks if, if you know, if you appreciate what you hear. And I can't remember if I announced this on the podcast or not, but earlier this summer, I—I I guess you could say I sort of flattened the hierarchy over on Patreon, uh, so that now no matter how much you pitch in, whether it's one dollar or a hundred theoretically (laughs) Um, no matter how much you pitch in everyone has access to all of the stuff that I share over there. I just felt so silly imposing this sort of hierarchy where like you get more if you give me more money because that's not really how I wish the world would operate. (laughs) So why am I doing that on my thing, you know? (laughs) I would really prefer to just give you everything I have to offer in exchange for whatever you're able to send my way. So I hope you'll consider pitching in. Um, This, you know, Patreon is how this podcast can be somewhat viable for me to pursue as an intentionally underemployed weirdo. (laughs) And your pledge at any amount is truly a huge morale boost for me. Honestly, I I just appreciate you all so much. So again, one more time, if you want to check that out and sign up today, you can visit patreon.com slash revival. All right, let's get on with our main topic. Picture in your mind's eye a map of the United States of America. What do you see? If you're like most of us, you're probably picturing an outline of the contiguous United States, the so-called lower 48. You might also be picturing Alaska up there in the top left corner and Hawaii somewhere out there in the Pacific not sure exactly where, but it's out there, or so they say. <laughs> uh, now, let me ask you, when were you taught that that was an accurate representation of the United States? Because as today's guest, uh, the historian Daniel Imbervar, points out, this, uh, what he calls the logo map, you know, this this outline of the, the lower 48, that map really only accurately depicted the United States for a couple years, from like 1850 to about 1853, what that map hides speaks volumes about the history of the American empire over the last 150 years. And it boggles my mind that I learned basically none of this at any point in my American public school education. What most of us do not picture when we think of the United States is places like Guam and American Samoa and the Philippines and and even Puerto Rico, despite its relative proximity to the mainland. I mean, were you aware, dear listener, that there were multiple attempts at violent attacks on the mainland by Puerto Rican separatists in the 20th century? Because I never heard a word about any of that until I read this book. So why do you suppose that those separatists were so incensed by the U.S. government that they felt compelled to stage attacks on mainland politicians? Could it have something to do with the fact that they experienced what some might know as taxation without representation, something that Americans historically have not been big fans of, as I recall? (laughs) (laughs) Or could it have something to do with the literal attempts at genocide carried out against Puerto Ricans in the 20th century by figures from the mainland who were not only not shamed or punished for their actions, but actually literally lauded as heroes, at least back home, where nobody would ever hear the stories of the atrocities that they committed in faraway territories? So again, why are these stories not told? Why is this stuff news, even to the historians like Daniel Imovar, who make careers out of studying history? And why is America so reluctant to to self-identify as an empire, like, say, the British Empire, which seemingly has no qualms about describing itself as such? After all, there can be no doubt that the United States is the most dominant global imperial force known to history. I mean, I don't think that's like a hot take, you know? <laughs> to elaborate on that idea, I want to share this passage from the very end of the book How to Hide an Empire, and I don't think this is like a, a spoiler alert or anything like that. <laughs> if anything, I think that, uh, that this summation uh, ought to make you want to read the book that much more, uh, so check it out. This is what Daniel Amarvar says at the end of mm-hmm. the conclusion to the book, which is entitled Enduring Empire. So does this all mean the United States can be classified as an empire? That term is most often used as a pejorative, as an unfavorable character assessment. Empires are the bullies that bat weaker nations around. It's not hard to argue that the United States is imperialist in that sense. Certainly, its corporations and armed forces have spread themselves out comfortably all over the world. Yet empire is not only a pejorative, it's also a way of describing a country that, for good or bad, has outposts and colonies. In this sense, empire is not about a country's character, but its shape. And by this definition, the United States has indisputably been an empire, and remains one today. Oddly, though the United States is frequently accused of imperialism, Its territorial dimensions go largely unnoticed. So much energy has gone into presenting the United States via the logo map that even its critics, the ones most eager to cry empire, have little to say about overseas territory. Still, if there's one thing the history of the greater United States tells us, it's that such territory matters. And not only for the people who live in colonies or near bases, it matters for the whole country. World War II began for the United States in the territories. The war on terror started with a military base. The birth control pill, chemotherapy, plastic, Godzilla, the Beatles, Little House on the Prairie, Iran-Contra, the transistor radio, the name America itself. You can't understand the histories of any of these without understanding territorial empire. Territory still matters today colonialism hovers in the background of politics at the highest level. McCain, Palin, Obama, and Trump have all been touched by it. That may seem like an odd and surprising fact, but we should get over our surprise. The history of the United States is the history of empire." And with that, let's dig into my conversation with Daniel Inovar. Daniel Imavar, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation. Um, it's a to yeah, here. yeah. Um, as I was saying just a minute ago, you know, I've, I've basically been living in your book for the last, gosh, probably month or more, um, and just singing its praises to anybody who will who will listen to me ramble about it for for more than a few minutes. Um, I, you know, I, I feel like for me personally i 'm stepping way outside of my comfort zone in terms of the conversations that I usually have on this podcast you know I'm generally just rambling about nature and and culture and and lifestyle, uh, but your book, "How to Hide an Empire has dramatically reframed the way that I view American culture and I'm by no means a historian or even really much of a student of history, but I, I, I just so appreciate your immense effort to, to tell the story of the United States, not from the perspective of, of the government and the military, but, but in this case, from the perspective of the people who've been subjected to our, our military and our legislative might over the last couple centuries and I'm wondering how did you end up pursuing this topic you know was there one particular event uh, or story from the book that set you down this rabbit hole
1: yeah there was um I had been you know I'm a historian and i I'd, I'd been studying U.S. foreign relations and I was working on a different book about uh U.S. overseas development aid and for that book I I had to travel to the Philippines to Manila to do some research and you know Look, I knew that the Philippines had been a colony of the United States for nearly half a century. I knew that, kind of. But, you know, there's like a difference between knowing something and really getting it and, and, and embracing its full implications. And I would say that I was in the knowing it, but not totally contemplating it in all of its fullness category. And then I got to Manila. And, you know, I just looked around and I recognized a lot you know, I was like, oh, this place has obviously been colonized by the United States. There's streets named after U.S. presidents. Uh, The transit system is based on, you know, surplus U.S. army jeeps. And, you know, then I would go to the Ateneo de Manila University, which is the sort of the Harvard of the Philippines, and I'd hang out there and I'd do my archival work. And I'd be surrounded by students, Filipino students, who would speak English with an accent that didn't sound too much different from mine. And suddenly it was like, the difference between reading the lyrics and hearing the music and I was like, Oh, right. Yeah, of course. The Philippines has been in a complicated way, part of the United States. And I'm a a U.S. historian and somehow I hadn't really been talking about it like that. And when I talk about the history of the United States, this place had kind of slipped from my view. And, and then, you know, immediately I, you know, I was living in California. I got back to California. I started like reading up on the Philippines and then I was like, well, what about Hawaii? What about Alaska before it becomes a state? What about Puerto Rico, Guam, American Samoa? And suddenly, you've got, you know, I've got all these questions. And I realized that I've been kind of teaching U.S. history wrong. I've been, I've been telling it wrong because the history that I've been teaching and writing about have been the history of just part of the country, the contiguous part. You know, if you mentally map the United States... That's the map you've got in your head. It's just that this sort of contiguous blob with, you know, Mexico and Canada on either side and the Pacific and the, ocean, uh, Pacific and the Atlantic, uh, you know, on, on, on the left and the right of it. And, you know, actually, that's not really what the United States looks like. In fact, that, that, that familiar map you've got in your head, uh, that shape, that shape corresponds to the borders of the country for only three years of its history. There are three years of U.S. history where that's the right map. Uh, and every other year, either you know, up until the mid-19th century because the United States was smaller than that map as we uh, often have it, or more importantly, after the uh, mid-19th century when it was larger because it had overseas territories, uh, the, the United States looked differently than that map that we've all got in our heads. So I realized I couldn't just keep telling and teaching U.S. history as the story of what happens in that map because that's not the how the country actually looks.
0: Mm yeah, it's it's so fascinating. Uh, I'm I'm really relieved to hear that uh, even the uh US historians uh, have, have this sort of murky idea of of the history of the Philippines and and these these out, outer territories, you know. I I I suppose I learned in school at some point that the Philippines were an American colony at one point in time, but I was still surprised when it when it came up in the book. It was sort of like it was one of those moments where i 'm like, Oh yeah, I guess that was the United States for a while yeah, <laughs> but, yeah. uh, what, what really amazed me as I was reading the book was was just how frequently I had that feeling of like oh my god i, I can 't believe i didn 't know this like i can 't believe this never came up." In any history class I ever sat through, you know, like the the events in World War II, what we call the attack on Pearl Harbor, was was in truth this series of of coordinated attacks on several of America's territory holdings in the Pacific. And as you demonstrate through this story and and many others in the book, it it kind of forces you to keep asking who is America and, and where is America and why, you know, after, after reading the account of, of these events as you lay on the book and accepting that the Philippines were a part of America at that time in history, you know, my, my mind immediately goes, well, yeah, I guess it was technically America, but it wasn't like America, America. And, and I wonder why it's so easy to accept that places like Hawaii are America, whereas Puerto Rico seems somehow less than America.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great way to put it, the sort of difference between technically America, less (laughs) than America, and America, America. Uh, You know, and kind of the drama of the book for me as I was learning it and researching it and writing it uh, was, you know, how painful that gap can be, what it means to live in a place that's, technically America, but not America, America. I mean, because that that difference right there, that's what empire looks like, right? Mm-hmm. Empire is a way of organizing space and organizing a polity such that there's a, you know, home place, the the, 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 the metropole, the mainland, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. And then there's this sort of, other space this outlying space that's yeah it's technically part of Britain and technically part of France or the Netherlands but it's not really and therefore the lives there have a different kind of standing right I mean one of the the really tragic aspects of Empire and one reason why I'm, I'm glad that territorial empire and colonial empire have you know to a large degree uh, you know evaporated from the planet although not completely uh, is that is that they involve the sense of you know a polity where some people's lives matter and some people because of where they are, their lives just don't. And a lot of the, the really horror for it, uh, for me, as I, was, as I was, you know, narrating this history, was these moments when you can just see that there are, like, some people whose lives are basically disposable from the perspective of the U.S. mainland. Uh, and, and, and that, you know, has often come up in really brutal and lethal ways. Um, so, yeah, that feeling that you had you know, oh yeah, it's technically America, but not really. Like that's a persistent historical feeling. And that's something that I wanted to tell the story of, right? What does it mean for there to be a polity where there's a sense of like, there's the real place and then there's a place that is technically part of it, but doesn't really count so much.
0: Mm. Yeah. It's, it's really interesting how you, um, the way you frame the the book in the, in the initial chapters, you know, we talk about how, since since the the inception of the united states it has always been states plus territories and and yet we have such a hard time conceptualizing these territories as as part of the united states and and then we have all of these bizarre Uh, really vague terms that that almost contradict each other. You know, like we've got holdings that appertain to the United States, whatever that means. And then we've got sovereign nations that are freely associated with the United States, whatever that means. (laughs) And and, uh, why, why do you suppose it's so convoluted? Like why, why have we seemingly never even attempted to straighten the stuff out and just have like a clear conception of what a non-state, territory is.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let me go to the fir- I want to answer that, but let me go to the first thing you said uh, first, because it's so important. Um, <laughs> the United States from day one hasn't been just a union of states. The name is wrong, right? you know, it's the United States of America it suggests it's a union, which means voluntarily entered into, that's what unions are, marriages are unions. Uh, it suggests that it's composed of states, it's a union of states. Uh, and that it's in the Americas, the Union of American States. Uh, from day one, the United States had territories um, and who you know were part of the country in a very different way than the states were. So they weren't really there by union, uh, and they weren't states. And then for most of its history, the United States has not been solely located in North America. Uh, it's been in the Caribbean, it's been in the Pacific, it's been in the Arctic, it's been all over the map. Uh, so it's kind of important to recognize what a fundamental challenge it is to the sort of baseline conception of the United States of America, to acknowledge all these parts that, you know, so often get swept under the rug. Um, You know, and the question is, why? Or how does that happen? Or what does that look like? Um, It's really interesting, because the United States, I think, has been um, particular in doing that. Um, and, And a really good comparison is is Britain, um, which is has had that kind of forthright imperialism that you're talking about. Uh, you know, Britain is, you know, historically been a country that whatever you like about it or, or don't like has been willing to call a colony a colony. Uh, And in fact, had a a, a holiday called Empire Day uh, that started out in the schools and and became official in 1916, where it would sort of celebrate the fact that it was an empire and school children would line up, you know, and and dress from all of the various colonies and they would cook dishes from all the places and they would sing songs and they'd look at the map. And the map that everyone saw had, you know, uh, England and the British Isles, but then it had, you know, India on it and had Burma and, you know, all these places were sort of colored in red. Uh, And that's not really, for the most part, the imperial history of the United States. Um, it had a holiday, a holiday that, that uh, by sheer historic, historical coincidence, also started out in the schools and also became official in exactly the same year, 1916, uh, and was also about the you know the country in some way. Uh, but this patriotic holiday wasn't called Empire Day; it was called Flag Day, and it was about revering the nation. Uh, and the thing that people looked at in the classroom wasn't the empire; on them, uh, wasn't the map of the empire on the wall with all the little bits colored in. uh, It was the flag, which has one star for every state, but it doesn't have anything for territories. And I think there's always been that sort of queasiness in the United States about its own empire. It's a country that imagines itself persistently as a republic even despite having a very large colonial population at various times. Um, and I think that's led to this, all those kinds of euphemisms that you describe, territories, outlying possessions, what are they? No one's really saying it, because part of the way that the United States has dealt with its cognitive dissonance of being a, uh, an empire that sees itself as a republic is by getting very
0: mealy-mouthed and vague uh, when it has to actually talk about its overseas territories mm yeah and and that gets to um what I think is one of the key themes of the book that that I've been mulling over for gosh weeks now or since I first encountered it um which which is this idea of the the trilemma between republicanism in the sense of extending rights to citizens we have imperialism, which is of course you know conquering territory, extracting resources, and then there is white supremacy. Uh, obviously the idea that only white people are even fit to be American citizens. Um, and f- for if, for anybody who's never encountered this term trilemma before uh, it's basically any scenario in which you have three options, but you can only pick two. So a classic example is like the trilemma of, of getting something that's good, fast and cheap. You know, you can only have two in any given situation and, and something that I find routinely frustrating and and depressing is how quickly some people will attempt to dismiss our country's racist history as like, well, yeah, maybe we used to be awful, but then there was like, you know, civil rights movement and and yada, yada, yada. And we fixed all that stuff because we concluded that we didn't want to be racist anymore. (laughs) But it's clear when you dig into the history of the, Laws and, and rulings put into place with Amer- with regard to America's offshore holdings. It's it's clear just how this this baseline white supremacist agenda is just kind of baked in. You know, it's it's encoded into our laws, and and quite a bit of it survives to this day. You know, it's it's never been overturned or even really scrutinized. And at this point, I'm thinking particularly of the insular cases and and how they relate to the Supreme Court's ruling in the case of. Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, so I'm hoping, would, would you be willing to explain what the insular cases are and and how they relate to Plessy versus Ferguson? Sam, I thought you'd never ask.
1: <laughs>
0: yeah, yeah,
1: this is my favorite topic, or one of them. Uh, so um, at the end of the 19th century, so the United States had, had a, already had a long history of um, expanding and within North America, within the North American continent, and um, taking new lands, making them territories, uh, displacing or dispossessing indigenous inhabitants, filling those lands with white settlers, and then upgrading them eventually to states. That was kind of the basic pattern of U.S. empire in the, uh, for much of the 19th century. But at the end of the 19th century, um, partly because it ran out of land in which to do that, Um, The United States uh, started eyeballing large populated overseas territories, uh, like the Philippines, uh, like Puerto Rico, like Cuba was a potential uh, colony of the United States, although it never became one. And and you get this really interesting argument about like, well, is the United States the kind of place that would include places like that? Because according to the old rules, of you know, what we call settler colonialism, where you just sort of, you know, take contiguous land and displace the people living on it, you can have both republicanism, i.e. the people can vote, um, or have some kind of representation. Um, and you can also have uh, white supremacy, because all the people or sort of enough of the people are white, that you'll still have white control of politics. But if we're talking about taking the Philippines, I mean, there is no fantasy in 1900, that all Filipinos would just sort of like keel over and there would be like enough white people who would live in, you know, Luzon, uh, that they would be able to sort of, you know, demographically swamp, uh, Southeast Asia. No one was really proposing that. So then you have this question, well, is the United States going to be, um, you know, what, which of the things is it going to sacrifice, right? White supremacy, Republicanism, or is it just going to have to give up on empire? Um, and what the imperial, the imperialists kind of win the day briefly, at least, the United States annexes the Philippines, it annexes Hawaii, it annexes uh, Guam, it annexes Puerto Rico, sort of goes on this imperial binge, uh, taking all these places. And then it rewrites its, its basic fundamental laws. It, it, it has a series of court cases about, you know, how to deal with this trilemma, how to, you know, how to resolve it. And the way it's resolved is there's a series of court cases um, called the Insular Cases, which say, okay, uh, yes, uh, the United States is a republic, and it's ruled by the Constitution, and the Constitution is the law of the land. But, but is really important, but uh, uh, the, the, not all these places are part of the land as covered by the Constitution. So there are parts of the United States that are, yes, they're owned by the United States. The the stars and stripes flag uh, flies over them. Uh, But in a constitutional sense, they don't really count. Uh, They're not really part of the thing. At least they're not covered by the Constitution. They're not fully covered by the Bill of Rights. Uh, And that's the way of resolving it. So you still get white supremacy, uh, you get empire, and you've kind of changed what it means for the United States to be a constitutional republic because you have decided that there are going to be parts of the United States uh, that are not, um, you know, that are not covered by the Constitution. Um, Sam, do we swear on this podcast or not?
0: yeah you can totally swear okay okay the
1: fucked up thing <laughs> following. thank you uh it, look you know that ruling you know came down in the early 20th century and it, it's just so full of racism right and like the actual ruling is like well these people they have alien races and they, you know they shouldn't really get to count uh and so you read that and you're like this is this is crazy right this is just like what past racism looks like but here's the fucked up thing uh the same court that does that ruling does Plessy versus Ferguson, which is the ruling that um, the nation would be administratively segregated, or at least it could be administratively segregated, such that there could be, uh, you know, black schools and white schools, and and just basically two different administrative systems. Uh, And and the Insular cases kind of have a similar ruling in that they divide the nation, not administratively, but spatially. There's two different zones. There's a constitutional zone, and there's an extra constitutional zone. The fucked up thing is this. Uh, Plessy versus Ferguson has been overturned, and we recognize it today as one of the worst constitutional decisions made. Right, This was like an awful moment in Supreme Court history, and Brown v. Board of Education, which overturned it, is like the vindication of the actual values of the Constitution. The Insular cases, just dis- decided by basically the same court on basically the same logic and accomplishing a very similar goal, those are still good law. Those work today, uh, those have not been overturned, and we're still governed by them. I mean, that's astonishing. And it's not just that there's still good law. They've actually kind of you know, infiltrated our thinking, or a lot of the thinking of a lot of people who live on the U.S. mainland, uh, because what the insular cases do is suggest that there's some parts of the United States, it's the same thing you were talking about before, that are really America, and there are other parts that that aren't quite. Uh, and I think that's that's a really familiar thought pattern uh, to people who, you know, like me, grew up on the U.S. mainland, is to, is to think of the overseas parts of the United States as not really part of the United States. That's what the insular cases rules ruled, and that's what we're still living with today.
0: Mm. Yeah, and then you know, as you describe in the book um, through through several chapters that we could probably only barely even begin to scratch the surface on here in the in the 20th century, especially as we get into World War II, the the cultural climate around empire and and imperialism starts to sort of shift. You know, it's it's not as though we we've let go of our our imperialist agenda. It's just that. The way that it manifests sort of sort of changes shape, and and the the insular cases I think as we see really set the tone for how we interact with with all of these these non state territories in in the century to come, uh, and and really gets to some of the darker moments in in uh, U.S. history in the 20th century, and at this point I'm thinking about like specifically the treatment of Puerto Rico, um, where where they were essentially sterilizing uh, huge, huge parts of the population. Same for the indigenous folks of, of mainland United States. You know, there's these crazy ongoing sterilization campaigns for, for decades uh, that are, you know, genocide in, in so many words. Um, and then, but getting back to, to Puerto Rico, uh, I feel like Puerto Rico is, is a, Place where the United States has has really done some of its most egregious uh, how do you even phrase it like some of the most egregious human rights violations I feel like have, have gone down in Puerto Rico in the, in the last century and it it boggles my mind that i didn 't know about any of it beforehand, uh, particularly the story of Cornelius Rhodes, um, which uh, I, I think you would agree. He His story really exemplifies the way in which uh, American empire mutated over time. So it was less about... Uh, it's so difficult to phrase, uh, but I... I, I just love in, in the book, uh, the very end of the chapter uh, regarding Cornelius Rhodes has maybe the best punchline I've ever seen in any history book, where <laughs> 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 you, you say, you know, now that is how you hide an empire. <laughs> and so yeah. I'm, I'm, can, you, uh, can you explain what you mean by that?
1: Yeah. So let's talk about Cornelius Rhodes. Oh, God, this guy's amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, okay. So Puerto Rico had, in all kinds of ways you know, had served as a sort of laboratory for the U.S. mainland. And that's the kind of thing that can happen when you have this extra constitutional zone, a zone where people's lives don't really have the same standing, where if, you know, things go wrong and people complain, their complaints aren't going to get as far. Uh, And so you see that in a lot of ways in the colonies. And I talk about, you know, a number of examples of the colonies serving as laboratories for, you know, ambitious, lawyers and architects and doctors but but puerto rico is is such a vivid example and um, particularly with regard to doctors so let's just talk about one of these doctors Um, puerto rico had been suffering fairly badly a lot of puerto ricans have been suffering um, from hookworm which is preventable uh, but you know takes a little uh, resources and infrastructure to prevent. It It happens if you walk around barefoot um, in, um, if you're working in barefoot in fields where there's like no um, sanitary facilities, so you're basically walking in human feces, uh, you will get hookworm. And if you get enough hookworm, it can kill you. Uh, it's it, it can be really debilitating. And a lot, despite all of this mechanism being known, despite there being fairly cheap and easy ways to deal with hookworm, uh, rural Puerto Ricans continue to suffer from it because, well, because that's what poverty looks like. You know, we know the cure and you still can't have it. Um, and so Cornelius Rhodes, in the 1930s, he's a Harvard trained doctor. Uh, he goes uh, to Puerto Rico and he goes to San Juan. Uh, and he, his job is, I mean, it's not even to cure hookworm. They know the cure. Uh, his job is just to sort of experiment, uh, find out what he can find out, to write research papers. Uh, and he does. And he finds Puerto Rico to be a, a really congenial place to, to do that and to ask medical research questions uh, because. Well, because he can kind of do whatever he wants. So um, here's what he does. I mean, this is like, you know, suddenly like doctors has gone wild. Uh, he, uh, first of all, um, takes some patients and refuses to treat them and just keeps observing them just to see what happens if you let pokeworm go long enough and you see people start suffering from severe anemia. Uh, he also has other patients in whom he tries to induce disease uh, through uh, messing with their diets. Again, this is totally crazy, right? Uh, But, you know, it's the kind of thing you can't really do as easily in Cambridge, Massachusetts. You can do it in San Juan. Uh, So he tries to induce disease and he's open about this. He publishes papers about this. He writes to his colleagues. He refers to these Puerto Ricans as experimental animals. Uh, you know, and he says, well, you know, they seem to have the constitution of oxen, but you know, I think I can get them to have diseases. Um, and then, I mean that's not even a, you know, that's just a little prelude to this. Uh, and then he does something extraordinary. He he writes a letter, which is really one of the more jaw-dropping letters I've ever encountered as a historian. He writes a letter to one of his uh Boston colleagues and he says, Yeah, Puerto Rico's all right, it's very beautiful. Uh, But, you know, the problem with Puerto Rico is, I'm paraphrasing, but it's pretty close to it, uh, is the Puerto Ricans. Uh, They're awful, they're thievish, uh, you know, and really the best thing for Puerto Rico would be to see the island rid completely of Puerto Ricans. And I've started. I have murdered eight of my patients already. I have tried to transplant cancer into other one of them. no luck yet on the cancer front fingers crossed uh but you know this is how what we do the doctors just sort of abuse their patients and and we can do this uh, uh hope your wife's well you know uh all my best uh i'll talk to you later yeah. <laughs> i mean it's just like this is like unbelievable letter um and and it and it gets discovered he leaves it out he he leaves it out and and the puerto rican staff in the hospital find it and they you know understand this to be, and you can see why they understand this to be this way, a confession of murder. Um, and so they take the letter and they refuse to give it back. And, you know, look, this is already in the same story, but the part that comes next, I think, really gives you a flavor of, of what it means to have a country that is bifurcated in this way, you know, a zone where you, you can, can do this kind of thing in a zone where you cannot. Um, it becomes public. And Cornelius Rose deals with this by just leaving. He just goes back to New York because what happens in San Juan, from his perspective, stays in San Juan. And it becomes an issue. How could it not be an issue in Puerto Rico? Um, And there's an investigation and the the colonial, unelected colonial government leads that investigation. And they find another letter, which is in the governor's words, worse than the first, which is hard for me to imagine. Um, (laughs) And they suppress it. And we, we don't, I can't tell you what that letter says because no historian has ever found it because it is effectively suppressed. Like the government actually destroyed or suppressed evidence to the point where we haven't got it anymore. Um, and Cornelius Rhodes is not asked to, um, to show up for this investigation. It's a little hard to tell which, there, there are patients who died in this hospital, but it's also a hospital, patients die. And so it was a little hard to figure out like which eight patients that he allegedly killed. Uh, and and it, you know, But then the government is of course suppressing evidence. And so ultimately the, the government concludes that yeah, he was joking or something. Uh, but anyway, he didn't do it. And here's the crazy thing, the guy just evaporates, goes back to New York and is fine. He's not fired. He's not. He, in fact, he continues to work for the, it's the Rockefeller Institute. Uh, he becomes vice president of the New York Academy of Medicine, and he just goes on to have a career. And not only a career, he goes on to have an extraordinary career because uh, right after this, uh, he's, uh, he, he's, he sort of enlists in the, in the Army. He becomes uh, a colonel, and his job is a very important job. He's supposed to oversee um, the medical wing, for the chemical warfare service so the united states is doing all these um is preparing to fight a gas war in case it comes to that which it doesn't but you know it's it has the poison gas at the ready and it's going to have to test that gas out and it's going to ultimately have to test this gas out on well rabbits goats and human beings uh and that's why they have cornelius Rhodes, a doctor there uh and and so they start i mean there's sixty thousand servicemen uh who get this um mustard agents and gas tested on them and sometimes uh, horrific and, and scarring ways that, that uh, you know, um, stay with them for the rest of their lives. A number of the people who are tested on in this way are Puerto Rican. Uh, And Cornelius Rhodes is just like signing off on these experiments left and right. Does black skin blister differently than white skin? Let's find out, you know, and Cornelius (laughs) Rhodes is there to write up the results and report to the government. I'm sorry I'm going on about this, but the story is so incredible. So after, you know, so basically he like gets another go and he gets like yet another opportunity to experiment, not exclusively, but on Puerto Rican bodies with impunity. And uh, at the end of this, one of the things that comes out of these experiments is um, that these mustard agents are actually pretty good for um, treating lymphoma. And at the end of the war, Cornelius Rhodes um, becomes the head of this institute uh, called the Sloan Kettering Institute, and he becomes the head of a hospital. And in these joint positions, uh, he starts testing chemical after chemical on cancer. And Cornelius Rhodes becomes, and is famous for becoming, one of the pioneers of chemotherapy. And so for like the rest of his life, you know, on the cover of Time magazine, he's known as a hero, a great medical hero uh, for being someone who unlocked the secret of chemotherapy. Um, And like, he got away with it. He totally got away with it. After he dies, there's an award, the Cornelius Rhodes Award given to like the best cancer, young cancer researcher. That award goes on. There's 20 years where that award is given out before someone from Puerto Rico is like, "What the fuck are you talking about? This guy is a national. Master- like, he. It's not like there's a, he's a secret in Puerto Rico. People in Puerto Rico absolutely know about this guy. But the informational segregation is so watertight uh, because you know Puerto Rico doesn't really count in the eyes of the mainland. That this guy is able to be, you know, a medical hero on the U.S. mainland and within the medical community, and a national villain in Puerto Rico, and that just keeps going until the 2000s, when finally the sort of, you know, breach is made, and, and the medical community realizes that they've been giving out this award, you know, after, you know, a racist possible murderer. I mean, yeah, so yeah, that is how you hide an empire. I mean, that is a completely just like beautiful example of how well uh, the claims of colonial subjects just get brushed to the side, uh, put under the rug, and ignored from the perspective of the mainland.
0: Yeah, I, I just find that to be the craziest story like so it's like it's one of those just like totally stranger than fiction tales from history like you you couldn't make that up if you tried (laughs) i i I think about you know in in the united states we like to talk about american exceptionalism right and I, i feel like this story really encapsulates what American exceptionalism means. Like not only are we not gonna tell the story of this this atrocious murderer who committed all these these human rights violations, but we're actually gonna name an award after him.
1: (laughs) Yeah. 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 No, it's 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 just it's it's just galling, right? Uh you know, that this happened. And and look, there are other examples of that too, right? Because that's what happens when you have colonies is that just becomes spaces for, you know, ambitious people like Rhodes to try out bold ideas. And to try them out with a sense that, you know, they're not going to be supervised too carefully and they're not going to be scrutinized too carefully. And that, it, you know, if they screwed up, then it's okay. They can just leave. And, then, you know, he's not the only doctor to do that in Puerto Rico, right? The birth control pill uh, is tested on Puerto Ricans for exactly the same reason. Uh, this is back in the battle days when the pill's dosage was way too high. Uh, so the um, the doctors, you know, think about we need a place where we can just give a pill who's you know, their dosage is uncertain, and whose side effects are uncertain, and we need a place where we can just try it out. And they talk about it. They're like, maybe Hawaii, maybe Jamaica, they settle on Puerto Rico, and they sort of get women under, you know, kind of half duress, they get poor women, uh, who seem like they're not given informed consent, and they just give them the pill and like the bad version of the pill, and the women complain. And you know, like they have serious health complications, including one that's described as cervical erosion, Uh, and, and, and this gets reported up the chain and the doctors are like, you know, Puerto Rican women, they're just hysterical and they keep going. Like the reason we have the, the reason that pill gets, um, ultimately gets approved uh, is because of tests run on Puerto Rican women, uh, you know, and, and like the pill gets approved and it's bad. So it doesn't take a lot long for the pill to be used on the mainland for the dosage to be corrected. But those early awful years, like those are disproportionately on Puerto Rican women, uh, because you know, that's, you know, again, it's like doctors gone wild. It's the place that doctors (laughs) can go to just try out whatever they want to try out without having to worry too much about the consequences.
0: Right. Yeah. And you know, um, one of the questions I, I posed towards the beginning there of, of why it's so difficult for us to conceptualize these non-state territories, or, or why is it that the government has never really clarified these places? You know, That was a question that kept coming up for me pretty routinely throughout like the first half of, of your book. But then by the time we get to the second half, it becomes clear the reason why these places occupy this, this murky gray area is precisely because it is so advantageous to have these places that that you exert, you know, dominion over but to which your own laws don't apply. (laughs)
1: Yeah, and I want to be a little careful about that. I think there's a kind of conspiratorial version of this history that we can tell where you're like, yes, the United States thought really carefully about one <laughs> wanted these places. So that it could, And, I, you know, I don't really think it's like that. My sense is that the history is a little more chaotic and there's a lot of unintended consequences in it. Um, there's a brief burst of imperial enthusiasm uh, that leaves the United States with a number of large colonies. And then there's a kind of question about what are they going to do? And it's sort of like this like awkward stuff in the attic. You're like, well, I'm just going to keep it around. I don't really know. Um, And so, you know, uses are found and people like Cornelius Rhodes discover that the colonies are sort of fortuitous places. But, you know, I don't think it's part of a grand plan here. I just think it's like a, a, a series of unfortunate events that are that are, they're not random, but they're patterned by the fact that by a racist logic, right. By what happens when you have, you know, a polity where there's certain people that for racial reasons just don't, don't really count, uh, all kinds of shitty stuff can happen to them. And that's one of the kinds of things that can happen.
0: Right. Yeah. I think that that is an important point to make, you know, it's, it's less about, you know, the, the, uh, what like the ten most powerful people in the world, like gathering together in a room and you know maniacally chuckling to themselves and and yeah, more just yeah. about the the series of of random occurrences, but which nonetheless, open these territories up i think to manipulative opportunists who are more than happy to take advantage of of those those legal gray areas um, yeah
1: and this is and this is kind of always how power works right it's you know it's rarely a like grand conspiracy But, you know, when you've got people who are more powerful and people are weaker and people who are stronger, like, yeah, there's a way there's a sort of fecal gravity and a tendency of shit to roll one direction and not the other. And what's just really important to recognize in the United States is that there's a legal structure and a spatial structure and a historical structure that that is all behind this, that that gives you uh, these zones that part of the country where they're really important. I mean, partly because they are um, you know, laboratories and sacrifice zones, a lot of really important stuff happens in them. Uh, but they don't really ping on the radar of mainlanders. Uh, and, and so those places are both really historically important. And also, uh, you know, in sort of central places where history gets made, and I try to, you know, make that case in the book. Uh, but also, you know, places where, you know, they tend to bear the,
0: uh, the, the, the butt end of history more often than not. One thing I, I was thinking about quite often in, in this book is, uh, as I was reading this book, is you know we we see these events in history that have played out in the last you know hundred, two hundred years, and and as I mentioned before, we, we we tend to think of it as like, oh, that's how that's the way things used to be, but yeah. it's not like that anymore. Like we 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 fixed all that stuff, and and then we get to the topic of. 9-11 and the events that transpired, uh, as a result of 9-11. And, and, and so there, there's a, there's a question I really want to ask if you'll, if you'll indulge me, uh, sure. as, uh, I, I, want to take on the perspective of myself as like a 16, 17 year old, who's just beginning to become like politically conscious and is trying to make sense of, of world events. And, and that question is, why is Guantanamo Bay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah.
1: Why is Guantanamo Bay? (laughs) Yeah. uh, Well, look, I mean, that's another really good example of, you know, uh, something that's not really the result of a large, you know, more than spanning more than a century long conspiracy. Uh, It's that Guantanamo Bay is just, is like yet another one of those spaces. Uh, The United States claimed it, um, as a sort of complicated result of the war with Spain that it had in 1898, uh, where it occupied Cuba. And then, uh, at sort of at the price of leaving Cuba, it held on to under a very long-term and very favorable lease, uh, this one area of Cuba, Guantanamo Bay. So you get this weird thing, especially after the Cuban revolution where you have a, Cuba is like outright hostile to the United States. The United States is outright hostile to Cuba but the united states is also leasing a little part of cuba and it continues to lease a little part of cuba in fact uh washington sends uh, would send Fidel Castro the checks every year and Fidel Castro would refuse to cash them. And just like, I just imagine this drawer where these like checks they <laughs> every year and Fidel Castro is like, mm, mm, you, you're not legitimately here. So anyway, so there's this little spot, right? And, and, you know, on the one hand you could think who cares, right? It's just this like weird little anomalous spot. But you know, one thing that kept coming up for me in my book is that, that those places matter. Those places are really interesting spots because all kinds of things can and do happen on them. Uh, and so there's a long history of, of various uses for Guantanamo Bay. But what happens after 9-11 is that the, um, the Bush administration has this conversation. They're like, we would like to do illegal things. Or Actually, sorry, let me clarify. The Bush administration is not having a conversation about doing illegal things. They want to do things that are illegal in most places, and they want to do them legally. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we think of the Bush administration as being sort of defiant of law. Actually, they're quite solicitous about law uh, and on staying just on the right side of it. And so the idea is that um, Guantanamo Bay is a place over which the United States has exclusive uh, and um, sort of unimpeded jurisdiction. So it can, do, it can physically do anything it wants. But Guantanamo Bay is leased uh, from Cuba, and therefore it is technically Cuba and not the United States, uh, and therefore, it is in a different, it's a different kind of legal zone as the actual colonies, but it's, it's a similar sort of thing. And what that means is that U.S. trees do not apply there, the U.S. laws don't apply there, so that the United States, it's, it's, it's essentially a foreign country. Uh, legally, it's a foreign country, even though it's, it's effectively uh, not. And so, it's exactly that kind of ambiguity uh, that the Bush administration sort of figures out and then seizes upon uh, as it as it takes Guantanamo Bay as a place where it can um, indefinitely detain people without trial, right? Because it couldn't do that in Wyoming. Uh, or if it did, it would have to answer a lot more questions. Guantanamo Bay, because it's technically foreign, is the kind of place where you can do that. And this is just a, a reminder that these little, sometimes quite little, uh, spots of, of sort of incomplete or weird uh, jurisdictionality is where the shit goes down for the because of because of the weirdness of them.
0: One of the one of the things I found so fascinating, I, I guess it's the second to last chapter in the book where you're you're talking about the the history of of Osama bin Laden and the events leading yeah. up to to nine eleven, and you know I I can remember I, I guess I was fourteen or fifteen when when uh, when nine eleven went down. And I remember the the ongoing conversation that Americans were having about like what is what is this guy's motivation? You know, does he what does he want from us? Why does he hate us so much? Why do they hate us? Yeah, and, yeah, and right. the answer was always, well, they hate us for our freedoms. Yep. <laughs> and and that like obviously like even as a fifteen year old, I'm like, well, that's bullshit. But like I, I could never I could never track down the the real reason, and it seems almost crazy in retrospect that that answer is so elusive because when you when you understand the the context in in which osama bin laden came up uh it's i it's i don't want to say that i i sympathize necessarily i don't think that's the right word for how i feel about osama bin laden but i it's absolutely comprehensible i yeah i absolutely understand his motivations yeah
1: So let's talk about this. Okay, so it's not just the colonies, the sort of large populated colonies of the United States, which it has held and still holds five of them today, in which millions of people live. Uh, It's not just those that have been obscured. They're not the only form of empire that has been hidden. Uh, There's also, uh, you know, these sort of little point-like enclaves, um, outposts, uh, military bases, islands, um, you know, all all sort of, you know... uh, Outside of the states and and peppered around the world, so you know how many foreign military bases does the United States have? We don't know because that number is secret. Uh, there's a very uh, sharp anthropologist, David Devine, who's just is like really just doggedly tried to count and using like news reports, and and the number he came up with is about 800, uh, which which seems roughly correct at least for uh, 2015 when he was counting. It might be a little lower today, but the point is hundreds of military bases. And look, if you take all of the land area of these bases, or at least the, the bases that the United States will cop to, uh, and, and, you, and you add all that up and you take all the overseas colonies and you add, you add all those and you mash it all together, uh, you still get a land area that's less than Connecticut. So we're not talking about, you know, like sun never sets on the British Empire type of stuff. Nevertheless, it would be, I think, a major mistake to round down those little points, those little dots to zero, because they are really important. Uh, really important, not just for the U.S. military, which cares a lot about them and having our continued access to them. Um, they're really important for the people who live right around them. Uh, and and the story of 9-11 is a really good example. Why do they hate us? Osama bin Laden was not cryptic about his reasons. He wrote letters like epistles, like letter to Americans explaining why I am doing this. And um, he had a lot of reasons. And they are, I mean, they're worth reading. They're kind of, he's just, he, Osama bin Laden is like, Got a lot going, on, I think we could say, uh, and so he's like really pissed about the uh, Lewinsky scandal, the Monica Lewinsky scandal, uh, which he feels like demonstrates the corruption of the United States. And he's like really plugged into that, and it's got it's like it's like reading a Star report this is is reading Osama bin Laden's objection <laughs> to Bill Clinton. It's kind of amazing. Uh, obviously, the sexual politics that Osama bin Laden wants to see are different from those that he feels that the Clinton administration is embodying. Nevertheless, but he's got a big issue, I and mean, he comes back to it. Again and again and again in his career and it 's a really personal issue for him um, the The source of the bin Laden fortune is uh, comes from his his father uh, who had uh, gotten his start, uh, doing construction and particularly working on, uh, a, a, uh, first a corporate enclave and then a U.S. military base, uh, in Dharan in Saudi Arabia. And that's how, uh, Mohammed bin Laden got his start. And that's where the ultimately where the, uh, bin Laden fortune stems from. And that base, that particular base, um, has been really important, not just as a sort of the kind of origin story for Osama bin Laden, uh, but it, it had been a very, um, politically controversial base, because bases are politically controversial. It is hard. Well, just think about what would happen if China had a base in Texas. You know, like, how do you think people in the United States would feel? Do you think they would talk about it? They would talk about it all the time. It would be a major political issue. And we know that because, well, because every time it does happen, it does become a major political issue. Uh, one reason why the United States uh, declared independence from Britain, or, you know, the North American colonies did, uh, is because the British were stationing troops. They had military bases in North America, and that was really hard on the colonists, um, there have been two Japanese Prime Ministers who've had to resign over the issue of U.S. bases in Japan. These things are always big political issues, and they're a huge political issue in Saudi Arabia, the Holy Land, the land of Mecca and Medina. So to have like an infidel power that actually has like boots on the ground, has like this little part of Saudi Arabia that you know, has a U.S. flag flying, that's a big and not a small issue. So the U.S. had the base, and then because it was so controversial... It closed the base in the 1960s, but during the Gulf War, it reopened the base and that became Osama bin Laden's sort of, you know, call, like rallying cry. Uh, and, and he declared jihad against the United States. And his main issue was the base. You have our lands, like, you know, infidel powers are now in the Holy Land, Mecca and Medina. And this had a lot of cachet, like a lot of people bought into this complaint. Uh, so why do they hate us? What was he doing? Osama bin Laden understood himself to be responding militarily by attacking other military bases of the United States. That's how he described uh, the World Trade Center. That's how he described the Pentagon. You know, he's like, okay, well, you're putting military bases in, in, in you know, the Holy Lands. We will attack you, and we will particularly attack your military bases. Al-Qaeda, um, if the, the full name of Al-Qaeda translates to the military base. Bases were really important to Osama bin Laden's thought and to his politics, and were right in the forefront of his description of why this was happening. But it's just like a weird factor of living in the United States, or living in the U.S. mainland, particularly one that I felt as well as you when I was, you know, experiencing that as it was happening. I was completely confused, you know, and like even when it came out, they were like, Osama bin Laden is upset. I was like, who's Osama bin Laden? They're like, well, he's upset about a military base in Saudi Arabia. I was like, there's a military base in Saudi Arabia?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Why? Is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? I mean, it's just like completely off my radar. Uh, And that's, you know, look, if you live in Germany, U.S. bases are not off your radar. You're fully aware of them. If you live in Japan, you know about them. If you live in South Korea, they're obvious. The United States is kind of the only country where U.S. military bases don't really seem to like ping on anyone's radar as a major political issue. But they certainly were a big one for Osama Bin Laden. And that's, you know, in some indirect but very important way, why 9-11 happened.
0: Right. Um, one, of the, one of the quotes that you bring up in the book that I found particularly fascinating in, in this context is um, uh, was Donald Rumsfeld, where he says something to the effect of, well, we're not colonizers because we're not interested in acquiring your territory anymore. Yeah. And I, I feel like that, that just speaks volumes about the ways in which our, imperial, our imperialist agenda has, has mutated over time.
1: Yeah, so it's important to talk about this, right? So, you know, in the 19th century, and in the first half of the 20th century, the United States was kind of playing by the old playbook, which is that when you get more powerful, you get bigger, and you take colonies, and that's what you get to do. Uh, and after World War II, the United States did something interesting, which is it, it's not that it got rid of all its colonies, it still has some, but it, it transitioned to having these these dots, these points, to having a, what I call a pointillist empire. Uh, and, and to the point where You know, this came up with the Bush administration a lot, because they were always getting accused of imperialism, right, like Rumsfeld and Cheney and all those guys and and Colin Powell. And and what they would say was really interesting, because they would say, oh, we're not imperialists. We're not trying to annex Iraq, like we're not trying to like turn like it's like into the United States of you know Iraq, like like we're not, we're not, we're not even thinking about that. We, in fact, we would like the opposite. We just want like, to like do a couple of airstrikes, uh, take out Saddam Hussein, and leave, and then have all the Iraqis you know just like you know uh, cut us uh, deals for oil, like and you know what. That's right. That is not a lie. That is not a like, fig leaf that's not subterfuge. That's entirely correct. Uh, this is an administration that cares deeply about military bases and, and about where they are, and Rumsfeld uh, uh, particularly was very thoughtful about them, but has really gotten very far away from the old colonial mission. Uh, and when the Bush administration said that we're not imperialists in the sense of we don't seek a colony in the Middle East, they were right. I mean, that's, that is true. Now, you know, imperialist in another sense uh in the sense of you know seeking to use uh u.s power to um control politics in the middle east coercively if necessary yes absolutely guilty as charged uh but 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 it's it's a funny moment when the you get to like cheney and, and rumsfeld and the others they will say that often they're like it's really important uh to us, you know, and to our audience to recognize that colonialism isn't our mission. And that's, and that's true. I think that's an accurate statement because by that point, the United States had sort of fully transitioned from having no longer having a mission of colonial empire, even if it still had some overseas territories, uh, but rather caring, not, not about taking new colonies as a way of getting power, but, but just as controlling a few, uh, or, you know, hundreds of, of, of really tactically important points.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, and speaking of, of, tactically important points or perhaps it's uh, uh industrially important points um i was really baffled by the story that you bring up really just kind of briefly at, at the very end of the book uh regarding saipan which is the largest of the northern mariana islands which i think most americans are probably thoroughly unaware that that's even a part of the united states at all whatsoever yeah. and it seems like you could probably write an entire book just about the events that that transpired there in the last couple of decades but I think it offers us a perfect example again of, of how America's imperialism has has mutated over time. You know, we have uh, Representative Tom Delay, who who describes Saipan as a perfect petri dish of capitalism. Which which for me, as as someone who is let's say a very harsh critic of capitalism, <laughs> I hear that phrase and, and I, all these alarm bells just start going off immediately in my head. Like, oh my God, wh- what kind of horror show have we created? here to to have described it as like the, the perfect petri dish of of capitalism so what what happened in in Saipan
1: yeah Saipan is the economic Guantanamo bay it 's <clears throat> a very similar kind of place and it 's a place where uh, different rules apply, and different things can be done, and therefore it becomes really important. So here's what happened: uh, by the '90s, it, it, it started to dawn on people that uh, that a lot of the clothes that were sold, retailed in the United States by like Abercrombie and Fitch and J. Crew, were being stitched in Saipan. And Saipan is a beautiful Pacific island that is. Not really close to a lot of the outlets, you know, not really close to a lot of the places where the clothing was being uh, sold. And it also not really close to the uh, labor supply, because a lot of the people doing the stitching were um, Chinese or uh, South Asian workers who, like, hauled over to Saipan at great expense, and then they work in sweatshops there, stitching clothes, and you're like why is this happening? This makes no sense. Saipan should just be like a tourist destination. It should not be this sweatshop hub of, of the entire U.S. garment economy. Uh, and the reason is this, uh, is that uh, because of the insular cases, so Saipan is part of the Northern Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, which is one of the five uh, current inhabited uh, overseas territories of the United States. Um, but because of the uh, aforementioned insular cases, Uh, Saipan is not fully covered by federal law or by the Constitution. And so what that means is this, is that um, Saipan is um, uh, not covered by U.S. um, labor laws, and so it doesn't have a federal minimum wage. Um, It has uh, different provisions about immigration and and guest workers and who can work there under what conditions. Um, The uh, workplace safety uh, monitoring is much more relaxed inside, well, much more relaxed in Saipan, and yet, never, despite all of that, from a trade and tariff perspective, Saipan nevertheless was still the United States. So people could work there for well under minimum wage, under you know very different kind of visa conditions, and uh, with without a lot of uh, you know federal oversight, and they could stitch garments that would still nevertheless be made in the USA. And so just this like one point where all of that could come together was really valuable. And suddenly you just see a lot of the economic sort of activity in the in the garment industry just collecting on this dot because it's the place where it all kind of lines up. So, um, you know, it's, it's kind of extreme. And like by the time the report got out of the sort of, you know, economic exploitation that's happening on U.S. soil... Uh, there was a bipartisan effort in Congress to shut this loophole down somehow. And, you, uh, and you, you can do it by shutting down the trade part of it or shutting down the labor law exemption or something. There's about, there's like five ways to close the loophole because it, it only exists because, you know, it's got like all those five uh, things concurrently running. Uh, but there's one lobbyist who is like the Wayne Gretzky of congressional obstruction is really good <laughs> at keeping this loophole open. And he does it by flying congressmen on key committees, including Tom DeLay and their families out to Saipan for like snorkeling and golf, and in a number of cases, visiting the um, you know uh, brothels of Saipan, where a lot of you know underpaid workers are also uh, working. Uh, and, and like just by this, he is, he manages to keep this loophole going for for an, uh, just a, you know like you know like a probably you know five to ten years longer than it might otherwise have, have, have been going. Um, and, and I only mention this uh, lobbyist because he's kind of an amazing guy. Um, he is he becomes through this he becomes a kind of expert on loophole lobbying, like he's the John Yu. John Yu is the Bush administration lawyer who latches onto Guantanamo Bay. He becomes a sort of economic John Yu and he figures out all these spaces uh, that are really good for this kind of thing. So Indian reservations, he works there. Uh, he works on uh, Puerto Rico. He works on Guam, uh, and 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 he becomes actually like the best paid lobbyist in Washington. He doesn't do any uh, Fortune 500 companies. He's just doing loopholes, uh, and that's enough to turn him into not only the best paid lobbyist. In Washington, the most notorious one. Um, I don't know if all of your listeners will remember this guy's name, but Jack Abramoff, which is his name, used to be like an like absolutely household name. Uh, and, and it's incredible to me that like, this guy, he's notorious as a lobbyist and was ultimately um, uh, prosecuted as such and convicted. Uh, but you know, his whole career is not what you think it would be. It's not just like sucking up to really rich people. It's not like working with the Trumps of the world. It's actually just like figuring out that the United States is a legally heterogeneous place where there's all it's like a, there's all kinds of like places where you can work the rules in creative ways. He's the guy who figured that out, and
0: that's what it takes to be the most notorious and best paid lobbyist in Washington. <laughs> that story just boggles my mind, as with so many others in in the book that, uh, like I said, we, we couldn't even begin to scratch the surface on here in our, in our conversation. And uh, I, I want to be mindful of your time here, but um, I'm, I'm really curious to get your thoughts. Um, so... For me, I'm, I'm, I'm someone who you might describe as a kind of bleeding heart progressive. You know, like my, my heart hurts for the plight of, of the people of, of Guam and, and Puerto Rico and, and even like Hawaii, where we're talking about like the things that are going on right now at, at, at Mauna Kea and the attempts to build this, uh, uh, this research space and on, on sacred native territory. Uh, you know, it's like these, these places, even if they are American soil, It's like they're only American soil when it's beneficial to the United States. But, but when the shit hits the fan, like, like with the hurricane in in Puerto Rico in 2017, well, then it's like, well, whatever, Puerto Rico, you're only barely part of the United States. So you're gonna have to figure this out on your own. And maybe, maybe this is too broad or like speculative of, of the question, but in your estimation, based on, on your reading of the history, do you think there will ever come a time when when puerto rico or or guam or or any of these other states do you think they will ever be taken seriously as as candidates for actual united states or or for full-on legitimate sovereign independence like what would it take to even get there and and does anyone even care or or is anybody even trying to to get there
1: Yeah, so two things about that. First of all, um, you know, when we're talking about futures, uh, you know, future trajectories of of overseas territories, I think it's important to just be mindful of the fact that it can be a complicated question for people who live in these places. Uh, It is not obvious if you're in Puerto Rico, or at least it's, it's a heated subject of debate about whether the best future for Puerto Rico is independence, statehood. Uh, or some kind of revised, you know, commonwealth status. Puerto Rico is currently classified as a commonwealth. Mm. Uh, and, and there are good reasons to to think, you know, to kind of privilege one side of the, of the other. It's not just an argument about rights and, and protections and tariffs and all that kind of thing. It's also an argument about identity. And so, you know... I don't really have a, a dog in this fight in the sense, you know, I, I'm, I'm eager for the people of the overseas territories to, to be able to determine their own future, which they've never been able to do. Because you can't, if you're in Puerto Rico or if you're in Guam or you're in American Samoa, you can't vote on your own future. You're dependent ultimately on, on Congress. Congress is the one that gets to decide. So that needs to end, right? I mean, who makes the decision has got to change. Um, but do we see any hope there? Yeah, actually, in a kind of perverse, awful way, yes, I think so. <laughs> um, so, uh, you know, the Trump administration, you know, Trump always, like, says the quiet parts out loud, and to the degree that empire has been a quiet part of the United States, it's kind of interesting to see a president who's, like, getting in fights with the mayor of San Juan on Twitter very publicly <laughs> uh, and thrusting Puerto Rico into the public eye. And I think that that's going to be in an awful and and kind of, you know, perverse way. Also, uh Amplified by the fact that you know these overseas territories are going to be you know they they've already been hit pretty hard uh, by hurricanes and typhoons so you know and 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 by overseas threats so like just in the last two years uh we've seen hurricanes uh maria and irma hit um Puerto Rico, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. Um, typhoon U-2, which is an incredibly strong typhoon, uh, really just nailed Saipan and Tinian in the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands. Uh, North Korea was making serious and terrifying, credible uh, 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 missile threats against Guam, which is a lot easier for it to reach than, uh, than California. Uh, and that, that's four out of the five inhabited U.S. territories facing existential threat in the last two years, uh, American Samoa is the other one, and it, it is not entirely uh, free from climate dangers itself. So, you know, especially as climate change gets worse, uh, you, I think we're gonna see these places sort of thrust into the limelight. Now that's not a good way to, you know, it's like, you don't always wanna be famous, right? Like, <laughs> you don't always wanna live in interesting times, but, um, but I think that, that we're in a moment when, um, partly because of a, you know, Trump-induced and partly because of a climate-induced crisis, uh, we're, we're seeing the overseas territories become more visible, than they had been before. And, you know, if that leads the United States to sort of get right on this issue, you know, that would, that would be a silver lining in, in what otherwise is a, is a kind of dark and threatening cloud.
0: Mm. Yeah, I, I, I appreciate that perspective. I feel like whatever the future may hold, it's, it's certainly the case that it's got to start with with visibility, you know, there's the, the line you bring up, I guess, from a uh, uh, West side story where they say yeah. nobody knows in America, Puerto Rico's in America. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yeah, like it, it, reading your book, I, I, I was totally clueless about all of, of the history that you, you lay out in, in across, you know, several hundred pages. I had never heard essentially any of these stories. And like, I, I feel like because I now know the history I I can't help but care about Puerto Rico and Guam and American Samoa and all the rest, just because I, I have now connected with, with those stories. You know, I, I feel like, you know, you mentioned before, like we don't really have skin in the game, but it's like, uh, uh, you know, my, my heart goes out to those people in a way that it could not possibly have before because I just, I was totally unaware of their stories.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, I felt this way as a, as a researcher, right. I mean, so, you know, you, you got the book as a reader, I got it as a writer, but you know, all that, a lot of that stuff, I just, you know, had only peripherally been aware of or hadn't known at all, uh, you know, eight years ago, nine years ago when I started researching this. So um, yeah. And and I had, I had a similar feeling. It was a lot of stuff. I was like, once you see it, you can't unsee it. Um, You know, it, it felt to me like I was just seeing, you know, a country that I knew familiarly and knew intimately in a new light, and I was like, "Oh God!" Like, I like this is this whole dimension that I've been missing, and and it's been you know, it's it's like one of those paradigm shifts where you're like staring at a picture of a rabbit, and suddenly it's a duck. Anyway, <laughs> now I'm seeing. Now I can't. Now I can always kind of see the duck from now on. Um, so yeah, it's 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 it's, been, it's been, it was a sort of transformative shift for me um, to to recognize you know the the not only just like the the claims and the, you know that people living in Puerto Rico to colonize people have have to make and people living near military bases, but just the, the like the centrality of them too. Like mm-hmm. it's hard to tell us history without talking about these places because this is where a lot of stuff happens. Um, and, 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 you know, once I kind of like got all that in view, it's hard for me to go back and, and keep talking about us history in the same sort of way that I've been teaching it and, and, and thinking about it for years.
0: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, let's, I, I've got my fingers crossed that, uh, that your book um, and hopefully the work of, of other scholars in, in this area um, will act as a, as a corrective to, you know, this, the centuries of, of just not even telling these stories at all whatsoever. And yeah, I, I really can't thank you enough for, for doing, doing the hard work of, of getting these stories out and, and also, of, you know, coming on and, and talking to me about them here. Yeah, it's
1: a pleasure. And let me just say in closing, um, you mentioned other scholars, and that's important to mention. Uh, You know, I was, for me, this felt like a way to gain a new perspective on US history. I am not the first historian and not the first writer who's done this kind of stuff. So if anyone picks up my book, you know, flip through the notes, you will find just, you know, Volumes, shelves full of really excellent scholarship and really excellent histories uh, about you know, military bases, about colonies, about about imperialism, and you know, there, 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 there's a whole library there that you can dig into, and, and I, I, you know, it, you, you'll be happy when you do.
0: Yeah, yeah, no doubt. Well, Daniel, thank you again so much. I'm I'm so glad we were able to connect and, and have this conversation. An absolute pleasure, Sam. Thanks so much. <laughs> yeah. Cheers. I hope you enjoyed that conversation, and if you're interested in checking out the book "How to Hide an Empire," you can score a free audio copy of the book by signing up for a 30-day trial membership on Libro.fm using my referral link, which you can find at the GoodLifeRevival.com/support. I am a big fan of audiobooks, but I've always kind of felt conflicted about using Audible which is owned by Amazon. Uh, I I always just kind of thought that Audible was like the only game in town, but I just don't love supporting Amazon. (laughs) But look, I'll be the first to admit that sometimes it's the only place I'm aware of to find what I'm looking for. But thankfully, when it comes to audiobooks, there is a viable alternative, and it is Libro.fm. I've made the switch, and I would encourage you to do so as well, again, by visiting the slash support, and using my referral link to send you to Libro.fm for a free 30-day trial. If, at the end of that trial period, you decide you want to continue on with your membership, Libro will send me a credit towards an audiobook for myself. So this is a cool and simple way that you can support me in my book addiction (laughs) and keep me listening to cool new books like How to Hide an Empire, uh, which is one that I listen to through Libro.fm. And then maybe hopefully after I listen, uh, you know, I can go talk to the author and then tell you about the book like I've done here with this episode. (laughs) Uh, So... Please help me help you find out about cool new books and authors by signing up with Libro.fm. And one more time, you can find my referral link for a 30-day trial membership at thegoodliferevival.com support. You will also find that link as well as other related resources in today's show notes located at thegoodliferevival.com slash podcast 67. I hope that this conversation might encourage you to dig deeper into the stories of historically marginalized peoples who occupy the fringes of our society and our empire. And, and I hope you'll take the time to critically consider how and why the American empire has chosen to define different groups of people as others over time and, and how this carries over into the present day. You know, who gets to decide whether a giant telescope should be built on sacred ground in Hawaii and why? On what grounds do we define someone as fully American versus versus less than American? You know, what are mainland values versus non-mainland values? These are difficult, complicated, uncomfortable questions uh, that don't have any easy answers that I'm aware of. I mean, I know where I stand in the ongoing struggle for indigenous land rights around the world in the face of political and corporate exploitation. But what the solution to these ongoing problems might look like in reality is anyone's best guess at this point. What I know for certain is that whatever comes next has to stem from a baseline sense of compassion and empathy for our fellow humans. Forget race or nationality or, or mainland values, but just a baseline giving a shit about the well being of people who are inextricably bound up in the history of America through the oppression and exploitation that they suffered and continue to suffer for the supposed benefit of, of those of us on the mainland and our almighty economy. And and we cultivate that compassion by listening to them and their stories. History demonstrates to us again and again how easy it is for colonizing forces to otherize groups of people on the basis of completely superficial characteristics for the sake of political and or economic gain. The tapestry that Daniel Imrevar so elegantly weaves with How to Hide an Empire illustrates how America's imperial agenda has has been going strong since day one. Uh, you know, it's it's never stopped. <laughs> it's, it's just shifted and, and mutated in some really fascinating and often mind-boggling ways all around the globe over the last two centuries. When you look out into the world and observe the stories that we tell about foreigners and migrants and refugees and all the rest, I hope that this conversation and the book that it stems from might help you to properly frame current events in this historical context. Uh, you know, taking into consideration all of these little nooks and crannies around the world where the colonizer's own rules often don't apply for many reasons. What the empire hides from its own subjects speaks volumes about its character. So, how do we characterize the American empire? Well, how you feel about it probably comes down to how much you know about those stories that it doesn't tell you. And if you are not counted among those who have been historically oppressed on the fringes of society, then it's up to you to seek out those stories for yourself. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Good Life Revival podcast. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this one, please let me know. Your feedback really truly matters to me send me an email at samuelsycamore at gmail.com. You can subscribe to my newsletter at thegoodliferevival.com join if you want to catch periodic updates from yours truly. And if you dig the podcast, I hope you will consider leaving an honest review and rating of the show through whatever podcast app you're using to listen to this. I know it's a silly thing to request, but it really goes a long way towards teaching our algorithmic overlords that my show is cool. (laughs) Until next time, this is your friend Sam Sycamore reminding you that a world beyond borders is waiting right outside your door. Are you ready to step out? The Good Life Revival podcast is made possible by listeners like you. You can pledge your support for the show at patreon.com slash goodliferevival or offer a one-time financial contribution at paypal.me slash goodliferevival. For more stories, perspectives, and knowledge encountered on the path back to nature, visit thegoodliferevival.com. And thank you for being here.